Very cool. All right, let's get going. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Recovery Scene. Today is a really special day because we don't just have Chuck Norfless on to tell his story and share his addiction to recovery experience. Today is actually his one-year birthday. Yay! So, um, as always, I am going to hand the floor over and let Chuck take over and tell us all about it. Chuck, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. This has been uh, kind of in the making for a while now. Um, I know that you'd asked me prior and, you know, with life and COVID and all that stuff, people get busy and, you know, recovery is obviously first. Uh, especially in my life. So uh, I'm glad that I have this opportunity to, to share my story. To it just makes it even more special that we had to wait so long. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, you know, and it's, it's probably, you know, God has something to do with it too, because mm-hmm. it's my one year. I know. You know this is so, cool. so it's just like, you know, 365 days ago, man, it's, 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 it's still surreal to me at this point. Um, there's a lot of things that I've learned in this journey up to this point that I just, I'm just so amazed by what recovery can bring you, you know, bring to your life and to, and how it affects other people too. when they see that you're leading by example, or you are recovering the way that you are. So um, just super blessed for this opportunity. So thanks for having me on. Appreciate That's it. Awesome. That's awesome. All right. So today's an awesome day, but we're going to take us back in time. Okay. And uh, so let's hear how all this got started. Um, well, let's see, you know, I want to say I was to start where, you know, I was born in Topeka, Kansas, um, at a very young age, I moved to, um, to Colorado. Um, I spent a lot of my time in Colorado, uh, probably 34, 35 plus years there. So I tend to call Colorado home and I don't really call Topeka, Kansas home. Um, so that's pretty much where a lot of my drinking and my using career took place was in Colorado. Um, little background on my, my, my family is, uh, you know, here in Topeka, my, my mother and my father were, I guess, uh, involved in a lot of illegal activities that they shouldn't have been involved in, um, so to speak, or whatnot. And this is crazy because when I think about how many times I've told this story, it's still like semi-unbelievable to me because I'm just like, these things happened and it's just crazy. Like I couldn't even make this up, you know? Um, so apparently my mom and my father, they ran a brothel type deal. Um, and my dad had a relationship with one of the women there and she had happened to get pregnant. And when she got pregnant, hit my, my mom, the woman who raised me, his wife decided that they were going to keep the baby. So the woman who gave birth to me, you know, my birth mother actually isn't the woman that raised me. Oh, okay. Um, so the woman that wow. raised me, her name, yeah, her name was Carla Northless, but the one, the woman who raised me is Carla. The, my birth mom's name is Gwendolyn. And I didn't find that out until I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. Well, well, Gwendolyn was a raging alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, and I always had this special connection to her when she would come over. I knew her as Auntie Gwen. So, and I would always run to her and be like, Auntie Gwen, Auntie Gwen, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't know that that was my, my birth mother at that time. So, um, you know, time goes on. Uh, my mother and my father had a split or whatnot. They were heavily, um, you know, in active addiction or whatnot. And 
uh, my father and my mother, you know, they had went their separate ways and stuff like that. So when my father and my mother split, my mother started, you know, active, like really going in an active addiction pretty hard. Um, so I pretty much grew up a lot of my life uh, witnessing a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have seen as a kid growing mm-hmm. up. Um, she was never there as far as. Um, and this is your biological mom you're talking about. No, this oh, is the woman who raised me. Okay. Yeah, this okay. is Carla, the woman who raised me. My biological mom, even to this day, I have no idea if she, you know, what, like, I've heard she's dead, found out she was dead. Like, it's, I don't know. There's like okay. rumors and stuff. So I have no idea. Um, so I never really had a relationship with her at all. And I never really had a relationship with my, uh, my father either. So um, I feel like I was already set up into some type of way to go down this weird path. At, at this time, I didn't know this is what was going to happen. So my mother and my father, they split. My mom took off, took me to Colorado. My dad stayed wherever he, wherever he stayed. And uh, he died when I was 16. Um, there was a bunch of lies that my mother, not my birth mom, but the woman who raised me would tell me like, oh, he died in prison of tuberculosis or uh, just random weird, crazy Batman stories where I was just like, I didn't know the truth at all. Yeah. So come to find out later down the road, I, um, my sister, she had told me that my, di- my dad had passed away in a hospice from HIV, from inter- intravenous needle drug use. Okay. Um, that was a shock to me. I didn't know anything about that. Um, Due to the, re- the the non-relationship that I had with my father, um, I didn't even cry because I didn't have really any emotions or feelings towards that. Um, right. But still, you know, I never played ball, heard about the birds and the bees, you know, that type of fatherly, father-son stuff that you do. Like, I didn't experience that at all. So right. um, when right. my father when my father passed, my mother went even harder into active addiction. Um, I had, you know, my mother... The woman who raised me, she actually, um, she's the first person I ever smoked a joint with. That was mm-hmm. the first drug that I had ever done was I smoked a marijuana joint with my mom. That, that happens a lot more than people think. Yeah. So, yeah. And in a weird way, it was like, I was the cool kid because I smoked reefer with my mom. Right. Like, oh, you're, you're a cool kid. So for all those out there that don't believe that marijuana is possibly a gateway drug, let me tell you. For a lot of <laughs> For my experience... <laughs> It is because that was the first one I initially started doing, and then it led on to smoking cigarettes, and then it went on to drinking booze, and so on down the graduation of all the other stuff that I decided that I wanted to try out too. If marijuana made me feel this way, how was this going to make me feel? Right. So, um, so at fourteen, uh, you know, I blazed, you know, smoked my first J with my mom. Um, from that point on, you know, she was completely miserable about the whole situation and I had full reign on anything that I wanted to do like I was never home I went to school you know when I wanted to um I used to rent my room out to some of her friends that were in active addiction they would give me 20 bucks a day oh, and they wow. would rent so my room out really checked out yeah yeah um and she was an IV user of H and uh she she didn't drink um, but other drugs as well, pills and, and all that stuff. So um, she was uh, pretty far gone. And so um, she would rent my, I would rent my room out to these people for 20 bucks a day. So that watching what I had grown up seeing, I started doing the same thing that they were doing. I started taking out a little 20 bucks, go buy a little bag of herb, hang out with my friends, you know, just get some beer, shoulder tap somebody and have them buy us a full pack of brewski or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, that started the, the drinking career. I want to say 
15-ish, 16 years old. Um, never, ever liked the taste of alcohol. <laughs> it was just a cool thing to do. You know, that's kind of where I was. Um, then came like my high school years where I pretty much uh, still was doing whatever I wanted. I was involved in a very uh, bad accident. Um, since I didn't have my family, my mom, my, 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 my dad, and my sister was in active addiction as well. Um, so it's just yeah. all for your family. I mean, I know that Carlo wasn't necessarily biological, but your dad, you know, your, your biological mom, I assume, you know, so yeah, you were just kind of, so when, when people ask if it's genetic, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that this was a, a genetic and it was just a, a matter of me waking up that side, that addiction inside of me before too long, you know, I was going to be doing that stuff. So you know, my, my, the, the woman who raised me, she used to tell me that I was allergic to alcohol growing up. And now I know why. Because she didn't want me to drink because she knew the woman, she knew that my actual biological mom was an alcoholic and a, and a drug addict. So that's probably why she didn't want me to, to drink. Right. So me being that person, you know, I was like, oh, whatever. So I tried it for, you know, you know, hanging out. It was cool, drinking, all that stuff. Um, so... Uh, I guess, you know, kind of move further, you know, um, I was a four sport athlete in high school. You know, I played basketball, ran track, football, and baseball. That's what I wanted to do was I wanted to play sports. Um, it was kind of my dream was to play for the Broncos or play for the Denver Nuggets, you know, or, or whatnot. So um, I had a, a false sense of family with the gang I used to run with, the Crips. Um, mm. So that's where I got my family stuff from was from those guys because, you know, they jumped me in all that other crazy stuff that comes along with the gang life and right. initiation and that sauce, that false sense of, of family from those guys. So I used to run with those guys a lot. And one night I was going out with some friends and uh, we were going to shoot pool at a pool hall and this car pulls up and it's some other, the rival gang members or whatnot. And they pull up, they say something, I say something back. Next thing you know, words of exchange. Next thing you know, these guys get out of the car. Next thing you know, we're in this brawl on the side of the road. I'm fighting one guy. The guy I'm fighting is fighting another guy. Another guy runs and hits this guy. That guy hits the guy I'm fighting. So like a domino effect, boom, 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 boom. I don't know if you can see the scar here, but I have this huge scar on my arm. Oh, wow. See if mm -hmm. I can go to the, a lot of people don't see this in my videos. Oh, yeah. Wow. But I lost, um, I lost uh, pretty much my whole bicep in this accident. Um. So I was pushed through the window. Um, I decided I was going to walk to the hospital and whatnot. And the, some of the guys that were with me, my best friends were twins growing up, Stephen and Jeffrey Miller. Um, they convinced me not to walk to the hospital. So I went and I sat in between a 7-Eleven payphone and uh, one of them ripped their shirt off, tied it around my arm, made a tourniquet. I stayed awake long enough to give my blood type and a phone number and an address. You and must then have I been being like a sieve. Um, eight what pints happened? of blood. Did you what, fall on that? something? Did you fall on something or? It was a, it was a, a, a double plane glass window. like at a pool hall. So like this the, is the, the part we're missing. Okay. Yeah. So it was at the front of a window of like a pool hall. So it was probably 10 by eight, 10 wide and eight feet high. So I fell back through it like this and the glass came down and severed Jumped at my, the perfectly wrong my, angle. Yeah, severed my bicep. So, oh, you know, wow. I uh, I jumped up and I'm like, yeah, blah, 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 wilding out. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's what's up. Come back da, 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 and all this stuff. <laughs> and they took off in their car. I'm thinking I'm tough shit. Um, I, you know, like I said, the- Your adrenaline's took, still going at this point. 
Exactly. Still going. So I, uh, I sat there. Um, they say you only have eight pints of, uh, of blood in your body. They said I lost close to eight pints of blood. Um, I remember sitting there between you the got an artery and, right up here. Yeah. Your brachialis is my backup muscle and there's a main artery right here that, so that happened, ruined my, my professional sports career. If I was ever going to have one, there was no way I was going to do that now because it ruined some of the motion in my hand, my, my strength in my arm, half my biceps. So now I only have my, my backup brachialis muscle. And, um, so that had happened. And that triggered a lot of things for me. I had a lot of, uh, when I, after that happened, I was in a hospital, you know, po uh, PTSD, um, depression, anxiety, all that stuff kicked in you know, at about 17, 16 and a half, 17, 18 years old. Yeah. I stayed at my house. I stayed at my house for about six months. I never left. All I would do was have people go get me blockbuster movies. I would stay at home and just drink and, you know, pop pills or whatever it may be like that's what I did. I was so depressed because this, this had happened to me and I didn't know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. So I think that's kind of where the beginning of my addiction to alcohol and to other things kind of started. So you not kind of only did I spiral. Yeah, it was that. a downward, downward spiral from there, you know, not and only by the did way, I, I, um, Hey kids, for those of you that don't know, Blockbuster was this really cool place that us old folks used to be able to go and rent movies. And it was like, will my DVD be behind the box or will it not? <laughs> yes. Blockbuster was the Blockbuster was the ish back in the day. It was, I, it, was. it was like a whole experience too. You go to Blockbuster as a family or, or whatnot or with your friends. It's like, hey, come over here, new releases and a I know, total experience. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly put your name on the waiting list and get a you know phone call when that movie comes out and stuff like that so yeah so I um, understand that excitement yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so that kind of sent me into a downward spiral and um you know I I decided that I wasn't going to do the physical therapy because it was hurting my arm too bad they were doing shock treatment on my arm Ooh, and yeah. I, the nerve the nerve damage in my arm I didn't like it like it was trying it hurt so bad so I quit going to physical therapy and I just went to this hole and decided, you know what, I'm just going to follow the path that the other people before me were doing. So that happened. And then, you know, I get into my, my 18, 19, 20 years old. Um, I uh, started going out, you know, my arm started healing or whatnot. And I was smoking marijuana heavily and drinking heavily. And it was kind of like that. Uh, I always say I'm a yes man. Like, what do you got? Yeah. Or more, please. Mm -hmm. Or what's cool right now? Let's do it type deal. That's exactly. kind of who exactly. I was. Yeah. My um, drug of choice was, what do you got? <laughs> what, yeah, my DLC was, what do you got? So I, um, I started dabbling in everything. Um, I had found, um, ecstasy, Molly, acid. Yeah. Cause that uh, was long, big when we were, cause you and I are of an age. Yeah. You know, I'm 41. Both, yeah, I'm so. 44. And so, yeah, yeah, that was, you would have been just a couple of years younger, but yeah, when I was into college and you were at the end of high school that's what that was the stuff molly and acid and yeah yeah it was uh it was a, that stuff was a big deal you know for me uh growing up and so then the hustler mentality kicked in so um after i came out of my shell a little bit started going out and doing things you know actually this is a funny story i i trained myself how to use my left hand again because i only have about 75 percent use on my left hand by playing video games, by playing PlayStation. When they came out oh, the analog wow. controller, I started yep. playing. I used to play with one hand. I could control everything with one hand, but I started playing with two hands. 
so then I, that's how I rehabilitated my, my, my hand and stuff like that. So that's just like a little side note. So then I found the hustling gene, which I knew that my father and my mother had because they grew up and they were hustlers, you know, right. like, I, I started hustling. I, you know, I, I was going to the clubs, you know, the dance clubs and dancing to the type music. Yep. So then yeah, I found my love for, for uh, EDM music, electronic dance music. Mm-hmm. So then I found somebody that was the plug. So the plug would give me X amount and I would go to here and I would sell X amount and I would make profit off of it. And then it was, you know, special K and, and ecstasy and, and weed and, and all of that stuff. So I ventured off and down that road for a while all while drinking and, and you and smoking and smoking bud this whole time. And uh, it just progressively got worse. Just like they say, the disease of alcoholism, yeah. you know, it's a progressive disease. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it, it gets worse over time. So into my twenties, you know, still doing that. I kind of got out of the, the, the phase of the EDM music and the club scene and all that. And then, you know, as my friends started growing up, a lot of us kind of, you know, you grow up and you kind of go your separate ways. Some right. people start families or get these jobs and they, or they move or they go to college or whatever it may be. So my route was the service industry. Um, I learned how to bartend very young and I had the personality of the bartend and I thought I was good looking enough to bartend. I like to flirt and all that jazz. So it was like, oh, this is a perfect job for me. Right. I get to be around booze and drink free alcohol and flirt. What could go wrong? And- yeah, well, this is the this is the dream job, you know. It's, I get to be here at six o'clock at night. Like, come on, like whatever. Like, my boss is drunk. He doesn't care what I'm doing. So I bartended for about fifteen years, and uh, I became addicted to the hustling lifestyle as well. So, like, you know, being the man that mm-hmm. they call to get their stuff from that became an addiction for me. You know, being that guy. You know. Um, so not only was I bartending and making money that way, I was also hustling at the same time I was bartending. So I was doubling my money. Right. You know, so it was, it was a, for, to me, it was cool. I was getting the best of all worlds. So, um, and during all this, I didn't really realize that, um, I was, uh, a slow suicide by drinking and doing all these drugs, you know? Um, once again, I was always that guy that said, I'll never, shoot this or i'll never smoke that mm-hmm. well turns out never say never right so you know i get into my mid 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 late 20s early 30s um i'm living at this this complex that was called sierra vista and uh it was a section eight um so there was a lot of hoopla you know babies mamas and crack dealers and all this and i knew everybody that was there it was it was, it was, it is what it, it is, what it was. And I ended yeah. up getting caught up in that situation with some of those people. And I would be like, I'm never going to smoke this. Or I'm never going to smoke that. Um, so took my first hit of, you know, crack cocaine and was addicted immediately. Um, I spent two years of my life in active addiction, smoking crack, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So, yeah. and that was, yes, I do. The- <laughs> that was crazy time in my life. Like there was just, um, it was just madness to, to be at the trap house and to see the, the things that people would do for a five second buzz and then continuously chase that dragon for X amount of time all day, every day. And the thing about me was I didn't really think that I had an, an, an addiction to it because I was fully functional in my mind. Right. Like right. I had a job. I went to work. Lo and behold, though, I was stealing from that job 
to support my habit. So it was affecting my work performance by using and staying up for X amount of days and, and going to work and calling into work and all this other stuff. So I had that two year time period where I was really consumed by that type of lifestyle, you know? And then at the same time, I did the same thing with that addiction that I was doing with the other addictions. I was like, well, maybe if I sell it, I could be the guy so that no one has to go down the hallway and they could just come to me and I could smoke for free and all that stuff. So then that, you know, the whole 10 crack commandments, never get high if you're on supply type deal. I started getting high if I'm on supply and then it just became, I was supporting my habit. Right. So I was just breaking even, I uh, wasn't making any profit on any of this stuff. So once again, it was that yes man mentality of, you know, I'm going to do whatever's cool. So, you know, the ecstasy, the molly, the ketamine, then it became, you know, meth and cocaine. And this whole time I'm still drinking. I'm still drinking. I mean, I drank 12 packs. And even when I was hustling, I was driving around without a license. I kept a tall can in my lap everywhere I went. If I didn't have a tall can with me, I didn't feel like I was doing something right. Like that was my life for a long, long time. I can definitely and, uh, relate to that because I did all this stuff, but alcohol was always there. It was always the undercurrent. Yeah. It was. Mm -hmm. And in, in my addiction, like, you know, I've learned this in my sobriety. Um, my sponsor and I had talked about this was my addiction to drugs was an extension of my alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So when I was using, I was drinking. When I was drinking, I was using. So they went hand in hand. So it wasn't like I was escaping either one. Like if I was drinking a 40 ounce, I was probably smoking some shit. If I was smoking some shit, I was probably drinking a 40 ounce or hard right. liquor or whatever it may be. So, and this went on for just for a long, long time. So I got out of that phase where I was smoking the stuff and, you know, there was the time where I was doing methamphetamines and things like that and then popping pills. And like I said, a yes, man. So what do you, what do you got? What do you have? So um, that's kind of where I think all that just, just being from where I was at and feeling like I was abandoned by my mother and my father, because when I moved, when I moved, when we moved to Colorado, my mommy got arrested and I was there by myself from 18 and for pretty much my whole life. Um, and for me, I felt like I had to freestyle my way through life because I didn't mm -hmm. have a father. My mother was pretty much non-existent. So I had to learn how to fill out a W-2. I had to learn work ethic. I mean, the one thing that my mother did instill in me was manners as far as yes, ma'am, no, sir, hold doors open, you know, be right. a gentleman, like that type of stuff. But there was never any uh, strict rules or anything like that. There wasn't that you're going to go to school. It would also be fair to say that, you know, because for a lot of us, we use it as kind of a, a bad coping skill, you know, and there was a hole that you were looking to fill. Because like you said, you didn't have that dad figure. And then where's mom? You know, it, I've just kind of been abandoned, you exactly. know? Exactly. So that's where the, the hustle, you know, it was like, I always say I freestyled my way through life, but it was fight or flight or whatever you want to call it, or by any means necessary, I had to do what I had to do to survive. Mm -hmm. So I was hustling, but I was working. I started working at, I think, 17 years old. My first job was a tree trimming job, and then I progressed into the service industry. I've, I've had my hand in pretty much just about every job that's out there. I've done sales, uh, hard labor, you know, service industry work, painting, 
uh, landscaping, like whatever. I've pretty much done, I've done a lot of telephone work, telemarketer. I used to sell light bulbs and fruitcake and trash bags at one point in my life. Wow. You ever tried to sell somebody a fruitcake over the phone? No, it's, it's just, it, it was, it was bad. So um, I guess, you know, freestyling through life, you know, I had this, this ego and this pride of being the man, being the drug dealer, uh, believing that I was fully functional and that these drugs and alcohol weren't taking over my life and they weren't affecting me in any way. But in reality, I was leaving a path of destruction behind me um, and, you know, personal relationships, you know, with, with, with women and or friends or anybody I came across, it was me first, big me, little you type mentality. Like if it didn't benefit me, then I wasn't fucking with you, you know? And one thing I realized now too in my sobriety is when I was selling stuff to people and these, some of these people were my friends, I was slowly killing these people and I didn't even care about it. I was destroying their families. I didn't even, I didn't care if it put a dollar in my pocket and I could go back to my D man and be like, yo bro, I made 1700 today. Here's that. I'm going to take that five off top. Boom. Cool. Whatever. I didn't care. So that's something, you know, um, yeah, so I learned how to hustle at long, a young age so that the leads in the bartending and all that until later in my later years. So um, somewhere in my 30s, I would say mid 30s, you know, I was drinking heavily, still working at the bar, bartending and stuff like that. And I fell into this big state of depression and a suicidal stage where I actually tried to take my life on Facebook Live um, one time. I uh, posted a, a live video or I was on a live feed and I was trying to hang myself and luckily someone that i knew had called the police they came they kicked my door down and found me took me to jail and i was gonna have a warrant out for my arrest because you know me i'm not if i have a warrant i'm not going to court you're gonna have to catch me like that's just the way i don't even care if it was for a minor possession of a weed pipe or something you're gonna have to catch me i'm not just gonna turn myself in the police that was a mentality i had you know i was a priority right i I was hardcore gangster you know to catch Mm -hmm. me type shit so um i uh they put me in the round room with the jacket on, butt naked with the hole in the floor. I was in there for three days. You know, they were feeding me through this thing and had a little bit of time to think in there. And I knew I was like, I was like I'm not crazy. That moment in my life was a cry for attention mm-hmm. because I was at a certain age. I'd never been married, didn't have any kids, didn't have any family. Everybody had moved on, had this great family. So I was embarrassed of myself and I just didn't want to have anything to do with life in general so I tried to do some stupid shit thank god it didn't work um so I talked to the medical doctor at the 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 jail I told her that was a cry for help she understood they let me out um so that was a suicide attempt that I had you know and that didn't really solve anything because I continued to go back to my drug use my alcohol and marijuana and whatever drugs you know so I continued to do that well into, you know, my late thirties and whatnot. And there was another episode that I had as well, where I swallowed a whole bottle of pills. I woke up, don't know how, but I did. I ended up going to a library that day and I slept inside the library all day under one of the computer desks where nobody would find me because that was from the night before that medication and stuff was still in my system. I just slept like, it was like 13 hours, whatever, however long the library was open, I was there. So thank God that attempt didn't work either. Um, wow. so he certainly had a plan for your life. Yeah. Um, so for one, you know, my gang life, when I was dealing with, with gangs and stuff like that, I'd been shot at, I'd done some dirty shit back then that luckily I never got caught for, and I never got shot or stabbed or killed for all that. And then, you know, 
also in my drinking career, drinking and driving every, every day for so long, I'm so thankful that I never ruined someone's family or killed someone or anything like that, because I do have two DUIs that were pretty harmless, but they are still DUIs because just don't do it. You know, you never know it could change in an instant. So, um, there's a lot of lessons I learned up to this point. So, um, you know, coming into my, my late thirties, 38, 39, um, at that point, it was just a pity party on my behalf. I realized, you know, for me, I was going to be alone the rest of my life. I was always going to be a drug addict. I was always going to be an alcoholic. Um, I was always the life of the party, so to speak at the club or the bar, you know, Mr. Karaoke, Mm -hmm. uh, I could never just go and have two drinks, you know, like if I was going to go have two drinks at two o'clock in the afternoon, all of a sudden karaoke starts at eight, all of a sudden it turns into three o'clock, I'm blackout drunk, it's last call, I'm getting 17 shots for me and one for you, because right. we all know a thousand is too many, and when you're not, you know the saying, like one is not yeah. nothing, so um, I was pretty much running myself into the ground, so did I use a lot of other drugs? Yes, I did. Whenever they came up, sure, you got it, let's do it. You know, mm-hmm. let, let's go for it. Um, but alcohol for me was the main one that kicked me in my dick. That was the one I could not shake. I could not get away from. I was sneaking alcohol into my jobs and my backpack. I mean, even in my, you know, addiction to, to, to cocaine, I, I was smoking at work. <laughs> I would sneak off into the back room and throw something on the piece and boom, blaze it up real quick and come back out. Wah, 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 wah. Nobody knew, but I'd right. be high as a draft pussy all the time at work and nobody to speak my language. <laughs> um, sorry, radar. Um, so yeah, so um, alcohol for me was my go-to. It numbed everything. It brought out that, that alter ego, that Superman, you know, the, oh, the yeah. girls love me or I'm gonna do some crazy shit and it's gonna be so funny. Except for when you get those videos or those messages in the morning talking about, do you remember what you did last night? Right. The cringy stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. no, what did I do last night? And they're like, send me a video. I'm like, oh God. Right. That was me. Like I did that. Like who, who does that? Apparently me when I'm intoxicated. Right. And I understand um, that. I understand that because it was easier. I kid you not. Well, you'll understand. It was easier for me to kick heroin than it was for me to come off alcohol. Alcohol was yeah. the last thing that I had to kick. And that was, that was hard. You know, all drugs have their own, they're, they're, you know, they're all hard in their own sense. But I think the the, the glorification and the, the accessibility of alcohol. Yes. And how they put it on this pedal stool is mm-hmm. kind of what's wrong with, I don't want to, kind of what's wrong with society. They glorify it. Bud Light, this, Bud Light, that, Bud Light, yeah, drink Corona. Yeah. By this crown apple flavored whiskey that's going to kill you if you yeah. keep drinking it for 30 well, it's years like if you're not drinking with the family at christmas apparently you're doing it wrong <laughs> yeah exactly egg, yeah eggnog and brandy or whatnot that type of yes <laughs> exactly so all that stuff kind of tied together you know ptsd anxiety depression fear of abandonment issues the the lifestyle all that stuff so that's kind of like my past you know kind of in a nutshell. So it was very traumatic. There's a lot of stuff too back there that I could talk about it for days. I don't want to share war stories and all that stuff because, you know, right. it's just, it's, it's just crazy. But that was kind of my progression into where I am today. Um, so with that being said, um, 
I ended up homeless in Colorado. Um, I was homeless for a period of time. I remember walking up to this gentleman who was pushing a cart. I could tell he, for to me in my mind, it was, I know this guy knows the ropes. I'm going to ask him is what should I know about being homeless? This guy broke it down to me, told me like, if you're homeless and you're hungry, then you're stupid because they're giving out free food everywhere at this place and this church and that place and this church. And, and it, it was true. Like there was a schedule where there was kit, soup kitchens and handing out toiletries and, and hats and blankets and socks and all this stuff. So I learned the homeless circuit from someone that had been homeless for, you know, X amount of time. He was a seasoned homeless vet. And some, unfortunately, some people are comfortable in that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so I was homeless. Um, during this time, you know, I, you know, I cut my, my run-ins with the law numerous, numerous times, um, public intoxication, resisting arrest, reckless endangerment. Um, you know, I've been, I've, <laughs> I'm going to say it. I've spit on cops before being belligerently drunk, um, been beat up by the police. It was probably to my fault that that happened because I was an arrogant son of a bitch. So I probably deserved the things that happened to me even though I'd like to blame them for it. Yeah, um, well, we're but, not nice when we're drunk. No, not at all. So um, there's a lot of a lot of stuff, you know, and a lot of that stuff I bottled up and I hid it and I just never really addressed it because once again, alcohol was my best friend, my lover, my confidant. It never talked back to me. It gave me that effect that I always wanted, you know, that tingling sensation. I was consumed by the obsession of alcohol. Like even at work, I, oh, I can't wait to get off being a bartender or a server. Oh, we're going to go to this bar tonight and shoot darts and get drunk, or we're going to do this. And then if there was other drugs that were involved, let's do it. Let's party. So I was homeless for a while. Um, you know, uh, I had a relationship where I had gotten the dog from the person I was seeing. Uh, she couldn't take care of the dog. I ended up driving to North Carolina, getting the dog, all that stuff. So my dog at this time, me being homeless, I had to put my dog into a, a, a foster home. Um, this lady, she has an organization. Take this down if you're listening. If you're looking for someone that can help you, maybe if you're in the Colorado or not, she has a, a nonprofit organization called respet.org. And uh, she took my dog free of charge and oh, founded wow. a home didn't charge me one penny. So that was, uh, was a beautiful thing. So um, I was homeless. I ended up getting my tax money. I had to make this, uh, devise this plan to move to Alabama with some guys that were homeless as well. They had this van, the van. We were going to leave one day. I ended up getting my dog from the lady, uh, the foster lady. She came and brought me my dog. We were going to jump in the van and go to Alabama and everything's going to change, blah, 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 whatever. Well, the van broke down. Then this massive snowstorm hit in Colorado. It was like a four-day snowstorm. So it's me and five, one, two, three, four guys and my dog in a Conline van, one of the creeper vans, pink, right. mind you, pink the van. <laughs> We're sleeping in this van in the middle of a snowstorm. For some reason, the van just stops working. It doesn't work anymore. So I go buy a new starter, new alternator. I went and bought all this stuff with my tax money trying to get this vehicle to work, and we could not get the vehicle to work. Um, so I ended up getting a hotel room, let some of the guys stay there for a couple of days, and uh, they disappeared on me. I think I had like two or three, um, two or three days left um, on, on my hotel stay. Um, and I'm, at this time, I'm still completely just a drunk, a complete drunk. Right. Um, <laughs> I used to drink literally like seven to eight tall cans a day. And probably a liter of vodka because vodka doesn't smell. Wow, right, um, right. Tequila was my go-to, whatever. Um, so I'm sitting there in this room 
And this is right when the pandemic had kind of right in late March when it kind of started ramping up. And I'm sitting there and uh, the lady who had my dog or, or had dropped my dog off to me, she tells me that um, she says, hey, she says, where's your family? And I go, well, my father died when I was 16. My mother, my sister, but the woman who raised me because my biological mom to this day, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Some say she's dead. I don't know. She's alive. I have no freaking clue. I'm still trying to figure this out. Um, so I told her, I'm like, well, they're back in Kansas, in Topeka, Kansas. And she was like, oh, and I kind of told her a little bit about my past and my history. And um, she's like, okay, well, I just want to check on you and Kylo. My dog's name is Kylo Ren. Kylo from Sweet. Star Wars. Yeah. Kylo Ren. Excellent. Because when, when I got the dog, we had went and saw the movie Star Wars, one of the newer ones that it came out. And I was like, Kylo, that's a cool name. It's universal. Could be a guy's name, could be a girl's name. <laughs> Kylo Ren, I love it. So I named her Kylo. Uh, she's been through a lot of stuff with me too. That's my baby girl. I'm pretty sure she'll make an appearance here sometime. She's downstairs doing whatever, being nosy. But um, so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking like, what's my next move? It's about to be summertime. I'm stuck with my dog. I don't have a job. I have like $200 to my name. I'm in this hotel room I only have for a couple months. I'm in active addiction, drunk every single day, spending all my money, sitting there. And I'm like feeling sorry for myself. And then I received this phone call from the lady that had my dog. And she's like, hey, I have a question for you. And I believe this is a God moment. She says, I have a question for you. She's like, if I were to buy you a ticket to go back home to see your family, would you go? And I said, absolutely, I would go. Because at this point in time, I'm just like... <laughs> Right. COVID's going on. I don't have a job, like all this stuff. So I'm like, why not? Why freaking not? So I accepted her offer. I cried about it because I was just so shocked that this woman who did not know me that had my dog for six months would offer something like that to me. So um, she also, like an angel, offered to take my dog back and watch her and keep her until I came out to Kansas and got my ducks in a row. And then I could just meet her halfway um, and she would drop my dog off to me. Wow. Uh, so it was just a blessing for real. Right. Like, and like I said, I didn't know this lady at all. So it was kind of crazy. So what ended up happening was I jumped on the Greyhound, uh, March 27th or 28th, I believe, um, jumped on the Greyhound. <laughs> I had just found TikTok. Or, I would say mid-March, my TikTok career kind of started. I had no idea. If you go back and look at my early TikTok videos, horrendous horrible <laughs> i had no idea what i was doing i actually found just to go off of tiktok real quick i actually found tiktok from a friend i was in a bar in a pool hall and this girl was in the corner my buddy was like she's checking you out and i'm like nah she's got tattoos i'm like she probably doesn't like me so i went over and i said hey would you like to shoot a game of pool she said yeah shot some pool and i was dancing around all drunk and she's like dude you're like a walking tiktok video i said what's tiktok <laughs> so she explained to me what tiktok was and i was like check it out i was like ah whatever so i downloaded the app Started like posting whatever here and there, nothing major. So I'm on the bus. I documented, I remember I documented me uh, getting on the bus and me coming to Topeka, Kansas. And I hadn't been back here. I'm 41. I have no idea when I left here. I could have been four or five, six years old. I have no idea. Um, but it was the first time I'd ever been back here. It was the first time I'd seen my mom or my sister in 20 plus, 30 plus years. So wow. um, I, come, I come here, my sister, my mom um are in active addiction and they still mm -hmm. are to this day unfortunately um i've learned in my recovery in my journey i can't force recovery on anybody right unfortunately all i can do is lead by example and 
and, and try to show that recovery is possible. Yeah, Unfortunately, we have to let people be where they are, whether we like it or not. Yeah. So um, I stayed there for a while, ended up getting my stimulus check. And I still had some, uh, I had like, you know, that $200 of my tax money left over and the quarantine happened. So don't go anywhere unless it's essential. So I found a liquor store that was right down the street. So essential as i as <laughs> really i was essential yeah yeah exactly because alcohol <laughs> is essential that was weird to me too i was like this is crazy <laughs> like oh yeah we're gonna open and and, and at this time i knew nothing about recovery because i'd never been in recovery before so i knew nothing about recovery um or about the disease of addiction i didn't understand anything about it so um i started going to that liquor store every single day spending all my money before you know it. I'm, I'm running out of money. Um, felt really sorry for myself this whole time. I blew all that money. I remember the moment I, I'm a big Journey fan. I love Journey. For the younger generation, you don't know who Journey is, check them out. <laughs> um, Faithfully, the song is one of my favorite songs that I've ever mm-hmm. heard. Faithfully, Journey, Steve Perry is an amazing um, musician and, and singer. And I was listening to Faithfully. I know it's not about drug addiction, but it's about the love for someone, you know, some parallel or whatnot. And uh, I really uh, was sitting there and I was miserable. And I heard, I I was listening to that song. And then I had heard this commercial come on the radio and it was for a treatment center. And it was like, do you or know anyone that's struggling from addiction? And that deep movie phone voice, you know, do you or know, know a loved one that's struggling from addiction or this or that or that or this? And I'm sitting there and I'm listening and then this light bulb kind of went off and I'm like, you know what? The world's not moving. I, I can't go find a job. I don't have, I don't know anybody out here except for my mom and my sister. They're in active addiction. I was like, maybe I should try treatment. You know, I, I started the wheels start to kind of turn on treatment or recovery. So I heard that commercial and this is one of the, the defining moments in my recovery. And I will never forget this. Me and my sister got in this huge fight because she was in active addiction and, and early in my early in my journey, I'd be like, oh, well, you smoke this. It's not as bad. I, I just drink. <laughs> You're doing methamphetamines, and that's so much worse than what I'm doing. You're right. It's not. It's all the fucking same. They all yep. hurt you and kill you and destroy your life regardless, whether you know, or know it or like it or not. They all have their own deadly ends or means or whatever. So we got this huge fight. She called the cops on me. Um, cops came. I didn't have any warrants or anything. And uh, they left. They said, calm down. So I was cool, played the role for a minute. And then next thing you know, I start going in on my sister and my mom again. You guys lied to me about my dad. And then you're the reason why I'm like this. And you didn't raise me right. And blaming everybody else but me. Because I didn't know this quite yet, but I was in control of my life. At least alcohol ran me, but I could have made better decisions in my life to where I wasn't where I was in my life. You know what I mean? So got this huge fight. She's like, you know what? Fuck you. Get out, grab your shit and leave. She's like, you cannot come here. She's like, get out of the house. And I will never forget this moment. She kicks me out and I'm standing there on the stairs. I think this is where everything kind of changed. At least this was the beginning of the change for me was she said to me, she said, bro, she said, when you find my brother, tell him to call me. And for someone that I never knew my whole life, really, they didn't know shit about me. She sure knew a lot about me Mm -hmm. because at that moment I realized I didn't even know who the hell I was. 
I had no idea. You know, I, I'm just an alcohol. I didn't realize I, I was completely gone, far left gone. So I ended up walking down the road and uh, found the nearest Motel 6 because I didn't know Topeka because I'd never been here in my adult year. So I had no idea where I was going. I Googled a Motel 6, found a Motel 6, and I did what any alcoholic or addict would do. I went right to the liquor store, bought a bunch of booze, sat in that hotel for about a week, drinking my face off, bashing everybody on social media that I possibly could. If you had a pink shirt on, I hated it. If you were celebrating a birthday, I hated that. I was just evil and vindictive and just such a nasty, nasty individual. Like anything I could say to piss you off or ruffle your feathers, if I could deflect anything off of me, I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I did that for about a week. And then I found the dope man in the hotel because there's always one in the Motel 6. He's somewhere. Leave the light on for you. Yeah, he'll leave the light on. <laughs> <laughs> Motel 6, we'll leave the light on. So, yeah, he uh, he was there. So I ended up buying some drugs and continued to do that for a while for about another four or five days. I was just miserable. I was literally spiritually broken, homeless and hopeless. I was just like, this is it. This is it. I, I didn't really give a fuck anymore. So my sister texts me, texts me and she says, bro, you can come back to the house, but you can't drink. I said, okay, cool. So I spent the last couple of days at the hotel and uh, I went back to the house just like any alcoholic or addict would do. I mm -hmm. found a way around it. You know, I would, instead of going and buying pints, I would just go buy shooters and hide my drugs and alcohol out behind the garage. So when I went outside to smoke a cigarette, I'd poke my head around in the garage, grab my shooters, you know, do the shooter thing and blah, 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 whatever, and uh, continued to drink. And I used the, the quarantine and all that stuff as a distance meter for me. I was like six feet. So you wouldn't smell me. I used to keep, I used to keep Starburst and Skittles with me and eat Skittles mm -hmm. so that people wouldn't smell yeah. my alcoholism. I swear I went through my alcohol career thinking nobody knew that I was drinking. But yeah, if you knew me sober. Yeah. If you knew me sober and then you saw me after about four or five drinks, you could tell Christian was drunk. You could totally right. tell. But we think um, we are and so slick. Yeah, I'm so slick. I'm drinking vodka because it doesn't smell, right? And uh, so uh, at that point in time, I remember keep, I kept hearing that, that commercial in my mind, you know, when I was back. So I had heard it the second time. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give it a shot. So I made the phone call, set up a phone intake because the pandemic is still going on. Set up a over the phone and tank, answered all the questions, blah, 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 blah. She said if they had a bed available, they would um, they would accept me in. So I think like a week went by and she called me back and said, we have a bed. We're going to open the door, but we're only going to have a limited amount of people. So I believe there was only like 10 people in treatment out of like 100 something that could be there. But there was only 10 people there that they were going to allow in for COVID guidelines. And uh, the day before I was supposed to go into treatment. Um, she called me and she asked me, she said, are you still going to do this? And I cried. I was so deathly afraid of getting sober or being in recovery. I didn't, I didn't know. Oh, I forgot to mention on the way with that walk to the hotel, before I knew what personal inventory was, I was taking my own personal inventory on the way to that, I'm like, who am I? Why am I like this? What is this? Did I, why did I do this? Why is this how people see me? I was like, all that. So, anywho, I cried my face off, and she said, you know, this is normal. This is what you're going to go through as far as uh, the recovery and taking that step. And she reassured me that this is part of the process. 
if you aren't afraid to get into treatment, then I would be concerned, right, <laughs> you know? Right. So, and this, like I said, this is my first go around in treatment. I'd never done any treatment or anything like that before. I, I used to laugh at the rooms, the people in AA and interventions. <laughs> I'll never be that guy. Look at right. these fucking idiots. That was me. I don't have an alcohol problem. I don't have a drug problem. <laughs> Look at this dumbass. That was me. Um, so I cried. Um, I ended up going to treatment. Um, May 19th was the day I went to treatment. But May 18th is my sober date because on the 17th, I decided on the 18th, I was not going to drink and I was not going to use any substances because I didn't want to go into treatment high and looking like a fool. I didn't, I didn't know what to expect what was going to happen in treatment, UAs or pat downs. I wasn't sure. So I didn't want to risk it. I said, okay, if you're going to do this, let's just show up sober or whatever. Wow. The 18th so, must have been a rough day. Yeah. Uh, it was pretty hard. You know, I stayed in my own lane and was in my thoughts and it was, I was a back and forth in my mind all day. Obviously, do I go to treatment? Do I not go to treatment? Blah, 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 whatever. Sisters encouraging me. You know, my mom's encouraging me, even though they're in active addiction and doing their thing in the house. They're still smoking weed and doing their stuff. And, and I'm like, oh, it's right there. I just want to smoke a joint or I just want to drink. And I held on tight. And I remember the morning I woke up to go to treatment, my sister, um, uh, she was going to take me to treatment. And it was about 45 minutes before I had to go to treatment. And I was like, if I don't get up and walk or go right now, I'm probably not going to go, probably not going to go. So I Googled it and it was like a 45 minute walk. So I grabbed my backpack because when I came to Topeka, all I had was a backpack. That was right. it. That's all my belongings. That's all I had. So I grabbed the backpack and put it on my back and I walked to the treatment center and I actually made a video because I thought it was 21 day inpatient treatment for some reason. <laughs> so in my video, I'm like, I'm going to treatment for 21 day inpatient treatment, not knowing it was 28 days. So later on in treatment, I'm like, oh, it's about to come up with 21 days. I'm getting out of here. I'm like, no, this is 28 day treatment. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> damn it. I was like, I thought it was 21 days. So um, I. Uh, now, did they have to detox you? No. Wow. That's that's shocking. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't do and I didn't do detox. I had quit drinking and using the day prior to going in. Um, I went in there, they, you know, did all this stuff, you know, had me pee in a cup and took my baseline, whatever you want to call it and, uh, all that jazz. And, um, I was in treatment. Um, it was such a small group. Like I said, there was only about, you know, people started trickling in, like, what was like me and one other guy were there. And then like this later in the afternoon, this other guy showed up and then this other guy showed up and before you knew it over like a week or two or week or whatever, there was, you know, eight, eight guys and a couple girls that were in there. And let me tell you, the first week of treatment, man, I literally, I hated it. I'm pretty sure that's the normal thing. I hated it. I despised it. I questioned it. I was combative. I was running the show still. Like, the fact that I had to get up at a certain time for roll call, the fact that I had to make my bed and you were checking my room, the, check, the fact that I had to do chores, the fact that I had to do these work booklets and shit. I didn't know I was going to boot camp. And, and have to go to school about addiction. Like, I was miserable that first couple of weeks. I hated it. I tried everything I possibly could to be a piece of, just an asshole to everybody because I was like, this is bullshit. This is a, you mean, I know how to make my bed. I don't even know how to make my bed. I know, I know how to do all this stuff. So little did I not know at that time, accountability and responsibility. Um, I did not know that. So that first two weeks of treatment for me was hell. 
in my mind. I, and, and I almost tapped out a couple of times. Um, I was just talking to a gentleman today who congratulated me on my year. He's actually, he's a life coach now, but uh, he had like, I think three or four years sober. He was a tech there. And I had this breakdown, this mental breakdown in the facility. And he like, and I was just getting ready to walk out the door and jump the fence and go. And he pulls me to the side and we had this conversation and it literally, it, he's probably one of the only reasons why I stayed that conversation that we had. He said, dude, do you think this is going to be easy? And so on. He told me what I needed to hear. His higher power spoke through him to me. And let me remind you, like my relationship with my higher power was non-existent at this time. Right. I, I blamed him for everything. And I was, I prayed selfishly, not selfishly or yeah, selfish, selfishly, yeah. not selflessly. Right. Up to this point, pray to get me out of this DUI, pray that I get laid, pray this, pray that never the correct prayer. And probably I didn't know how to pray the correct way anyway, because I'd never done it. But so, um, yeah, so that, that first couple of weeks was rough. Um, and then my spiritual awakening was uh, kind of happened. I had a friend of mine. We shared the same sober day. He became my friend in treatment. His name is Marlon. And uh, we both celebrate a year today. And we're both always on each other's heads and I call him to talk stuff all the time. And, you know, we pick at each other, but we both hold each other accountable and responsible for what we're doing, making sure that we're, you know, doing, going to the meetings and, and, and doing what we're supposed to do. So um, he'd say he had this prayer. He's one of those guys that could read the Bible front to back, upside down, upside down, like hanging from a tree by his toes. Right. And tell you every scripture grew up in a family of the gospel and all this had been to treatment like eight different times, but you know, all this stuff. So, he did this warrior prayer. I think it was called the warrior prayer with me. So we prayed on like, I think it was like day 13 or 14. And um, <laughs> my counselor was a brother, older man, had like 23 years clean. Tommy Van, amazing man, literally changed my life. Um, I remember the first meeting I had with him. He sat down, he said, we can sit here and you can shoot the shit with me and you can bullshit me all you want. Or you could be, or you could be, uh, or you could use the how. He's like, we can get to the how of this. And I'm like, the how? What the hell's the how? Honest, open, and willing. And he was like, if you want to fucking do this and do that and bullshit me, cool, I'll bullshit with you all day. He's like, this program, he, he said, this, he said, this is your baby. This is your story. This recovery is yours. If you want to raise your recovery like a piece of crap, go ahead. I'm still getting paid the same. This is not going to change my life at all. This is, that's what you want to do, do it. You know, he didn't sugarcoat anything for me. And I, I, I thank that man for that because that helped me along my, my journey. But he had given me this piece of paper and it had like 14 things on it. And he was like, I want you to put this on your bulletin board in your room and highlight four of them and say these four things every day, three times a day. So after I did the warrior prayer, um, there was this Bible. Um, I'm pretty sure everybody has this. Um, if you've ever been to treatment. Oh, yeah. The life recovery I've never Bible. been to treatment, but we have it. <laughs> yeah. So this Bible here. Um, there was a kid that was in there and somehow some drugs had gotten into the facility and he ended up doing drugs and disappeared like that night or whatever. And this Bible was his. Well, somehow, some way this Bible found it to me oh, and wow. it ended up in my possession. And so I'm in my room and I'm reading those things and we had just done the warrior prayer and I look over at my bed and it's made in this Bible. I slowly starting to kind of dabble in it and read, you know, this and that, whatever, Proverbs, whatever. So I kind of dabble and dabble in it and reading it. And I look over at the Bible and for some reason, I said, you know what? At that moment, I had completely 
surrendered the idea that I was in control of anything because obviously what I had been doing up to that point had gotten me to this point in right. my life. So I grabbed the Bible and I dropped to my knees. I don't know how, what prayer I said, but I do remember I said, I said, God, I said, I can't do this alone. Will you please walk with me and help me? And whatever was said after that, I don't remember. I do remember vividly that was the first time I ever felt spiritualness or that that vibe. Like I felt like this overwhelming sensation come over my body. I felt a presence. It was like, whoa, like I felt this weight lifted off of me. And all of a sudden I kind of realized that like he accepted my prayer and that I didn't have to do this alone. And lo and, be alone, lo and behold, did I not understand that I wasn't even alone this whole time. So the way I like to exp uh, explain my spiritual awakening, you know, after I did that and I cried for like 20 minutes, I cried. I just broke down. I let it all out on my knees. Ah, like a little baby. I'm sorry for this. And I don't want to do this. And this is not how I want to live. I cried like a little baby. And uh, the way I explained my spiritual awakening is um, it's like someone knocking on your door every single day at the same time. And you looking through the people and be like, oh, this fucking guy again. You open the door, you look out and you slam the door in their face. So when I finally decided to open the door in my higher power, God or whatnot, I opened the door and, you know, I look at him and I'm like, where have you been my whole life? And, you know, my higher power says to me, I've been here this whole time. <laughs> I've just been waiting on you. Amen. So That's right. Finally, when I opened the door and I let him into my life, I realized that I didn't have to do this alone anymore. So having that spiritual awakening and treatment, um, after that day, I convinced myself and I was like, look, bro, let's take this serious for once in your life. And, you know, that whole saying, I was like, let's chase this recovery like I chased my addiction. I would go to any length to get a drink or a drug. So why not go to any length to get recovery or sobriety? And from that day on, the last two weeks, my whole mindset completely changed. I was early to the meetings. I was early to the, I was doing extra chores. I was helping out where it was asked. I was you know, sharing in the meetings. I was doing all these things that I wasn't doing in that first two weeks. I was learning. I think what happened was once I started getting educated on addiction, that's kind of when the light went off. You know, I'm like, damn, that's me. Damn, I do that. Damn, is that why all this baggage and trauma and all this stuff that's been inside, like it started to make sense to me. Like the picture became clear that I had this addiction and that it was a disease and I suffered from it. Like literally, like, so at that point, I made it the point in my life to to get educated on the disease of addiction and of recovery and all that. So I took it very, very seriously. Um, so that spiritual awakening happened and then I started taking my recovery seriously. And um, I graduated treatment um, 28 days later. Um, there was 10 of us, but there was three of us that graduated at that one time. And my counselor used to tell me, he's like, look, <laughs> he used to tell me this all the time. He's like, oh, so you got a little 30 days and you think that you're going to go out there and you're going to save the world. You got some clean PP and <laughs> you, you know, everything about recovery and you're going to go save lives and stuff. He's like, listen, the world didn't stop when you came in here. He's like, life is still going to happen. That whole life on life's term stuff. I started to understand that very quickly. So, um, I graduated treatment as I was graduating treatment. I never knew about Oxford house, which was sober living. Um, I heard about it. You pay uh, equal amount of expenses. Uh, you have chores. You have accountability. You, there's a meeting quota that you have to hit and all these things, right? 
And uh, well, one of my guys who got accepted, one of the guys I knew, I got accepted into one. So I said, well, shit, why don't I try to get into one? Because I knew if I went back to my mom and my sister's house where active addiction was, I was going to go right back to that. Right. So right. I made the decision. I reached out to a gentleman. He's my brother. I love him to death. He's here. He's president of our house, uh, Marcus. I love him to death, man. He's like a brother to me. And uh, I've learned so much from this guy. He has three plus years clean. And uh, he's an example of recovery. And I just, I love him to death. Like our talks and we work at the same place. Like we work at a, I work at a golf course. Our drives to work at 530 in the morning, you know, whether it's talking about recovery or life or sports, whatever. I learned so much in that little half an hour from this man. He is strength my recovery and he's led by example. So I try to model my recovery and, and the things that, so, but yeah. So um, he came and picked me up from the treatment center brought me here for an interview. It was a brand new Oxford house that had just opened. He came from another house that opened it. There was only three other guys that were in the house. It's a 10 man house. I told him a little bit about my story. I did tell him I had a dog. Um, they weren't going to accept the dog. My dog was actually in Colorado at the time. Um, so, so you, so you know, the lady didn't know that I had an alcohol or drug problem. She didn't know why I was that. She didn't know I went to treatment uh, or anything. She didn't know any of this. Okay. I felt like she didn't need to know. Um, so what ended up happening was uh, they accepted me into the house. So the next day, um, I ended up walking from the treatment center. I came here and I had a, a room and I had 30, uh, 28, 30 days clean and sober. I hit that first month. And in treatment, you know, my counselor would always tell me 90 and 90. Mm -hmm. um, so I did like 12,900 meetings. In that 90 days, I don't know how many meetings I went to, CA, SA, AA, NA, NEA, I was there. I was I was really about learning this program that people had spoken so highly about. Um, and at first I was like, the program, what is this? You know, like, yeah, I don't know about any of this stuff. So I came here and, um, you know, I did the 90 and 90. I continued to do outpatient. Um, I did outpatient for six months. Uh, I had a life coach, my counselor from RADAC, and then I had my outpatient counselor. And I, the, within the first 45 days of me being out of treatment, I obtained a sponsor um, who has Bruce as my sponsor. Bruce is 74. Uh, he has 34 years clean and sober in recovery. Nice. Yeah, he's, uh, he's by the book. He's one of those guys. One, you know, one to 164. That's where it's at. That's where the magic, the meat and potatoes of that book and stuff, it's in there. You stay in there. That's where it's at. So I uh, I remember I was at a meeting and I shared, let me tell you, like the the, the first meeting I went to outside meeting, the fellowship was, was crazy to me because I experienced like this welcoming love, like everybody hugged me, shook my hand and didn't judge me. And there was people telling me stories. And here I thought it was poor little me that had dealt with all these issues and stuff. Like it was me, 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 but other people were dealing with stuff that was worse or similar. So the like-minded people in the fellowship and in these rooms struck a fire under my ass. I was like, whoa, this feels like somewhere I could be. Right. So I started, you know, attending the meetings like and stuff like that. So um, I remember I went to a meeting. He was there. Um, I talked about me coming from Colorado and a little bit my bar, a little bit backstory, like my bartending and stuff like that. You know, I spoke for maybe like four minutes or whatnot. And everybody said, well, welcome, Christian, blah, blah, blah. I felt the love. At the end of the meeting, um, he walks up to me. He's like, hey, man. He's like, I want to I share something with you. He's like, you know, I want to show you something. And he pulls out this coin. And it's from 1984 or 86, whatever 
30 whatever years as he pulls out this coin and it's from 1985 or 86 or whatever it is and i'm like whoa i'm like hey he's like i've been in recovery and sober for x amount of time and i had heard that saying if you want what they have you sponsor then you go get it right mm-hmm. i was like 34 years i was like i want that and i had heard him speak before and i was like i want what he has i want a lifetime of sobriety and that's what i want so all the suggestions of getting the sponsor um uh going to the meetings, getting to the sober living house, doing the outpatient, all these things combined all came together for me. So I, I, he gave me his number and I'm sitting in the car on the way back to the sober living house. And I'm like thinking, I'm like, man, I really want that guy to be my sponsor. And my buddy Marlon, he's like, well, he sounds like DMX. He, had the, he has a deep raspy voice. He's like, well, then why don't you call him? Give him a call, call him. Arf, arf. So I, uh, I called him and I said, hey, Bruce, I was like, I was wondering if you're taking any sponsees. And he said, I'll tell you what, Christian, he said, because my real name is Christian. I don't know if right, you knew that. Right. My name is Christian. Um, he tells me, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I have never turned anybody away. I said, okay, so does that mean you'll be my sponsor? You know, <laughs> and uh, he's like, how about this? He's like, I want you to call me every day at six o'clock for the next week. So I started calling him every day-ish, 6.05, wouldn't answer. He'd text me and be like, that's not six o'clock. I call it 601. That's not six o'clock. So I started getting on the train. Once again, accountability and responsibility. So I started calling him at six. And then uh, that's when my sponsorship kind of started taking place. And I started learning. You know, I, st- I started getting into the book and going to the meetings regularly and, you know, and working the steps in the program that I work. And so that's kind of how all this kind of happened right up to this point so um if, i never would have thought that i i never would have thought that i would come back to topeka because first of all i never wanted to come back here because it's lame <laughs> but i can't say hey, there's nothing here in topeka or kansas i'm like it's kansas i'm from colorado like kansas colorado like let's let's go like there's a big difference but I can say this, I, I came here, me and my sponsor were talking about it today because I just finished my fourth step and I'm on, uh, I finished my fourth and fifth step today. Let me tell you, that was the most freeing experience. Mm-hmm. All that emotional baggage and trauma and stuff, that those names and stuff that were on that list, I don't have to carry that stuff with me anymore. That's right. I gave it to God. It's freeing. I don't have to worry about it. There was some stuff on there. I cried during all of this because I was like, oh, I'm such a piece of shit. Like, I can't believe I did that to this person. And this is how they made me feel. And I did this because in my life, I was always two wrongs don't make it right, but it sure in hell makes it even. Right. That was my mentality. Like, yeah. you fuck me, I'm going to fuck you over as well. And it's going to make it even. And if we're friends after that, so be it. Um, but uh, yeah, so my journey, you know, like the first six months was up and down, roller coaster, you know, the... The, the the wondering why I'm sober and you know the for me people will attest to this I thought I knew everything in six months I, I judgmental as hell too let me tell you and I I'm so glad that I had some of the talks with some of the people that I did that helped me realize about MAT and all these other programs that are recovery right, <laughs> um, right. because I was like you're on that and whatever you're still I was that guy for a while there I because all because you weren't recovering like I was recovering mm-hmm. because you didn't work a program of AA or NA because you were on a 
medical assistant teacher, I was that guy. Like I was so horrible with that too. Like, and I felt bad about it. So I actually had, I had made an amends video to people that I maybe had harmed or said bad stuff about the program to because that's growth for me. So, um, yeah. And as I started kind of growing, um, through this whole process, you know, I realized, you know, recovery is not linear recovery is not one size fits all your story is not my story. Um, relapse and all that other jazz. And I used to have different takes on things. And so I decided to educate myself and just continue to grow and, and work the program. And it took me a year to get to, um, to get out of my four step, but I'm grateful for that because, I spent a lot of time in those steps getting all that negative energy and cleaning up my side of the street and all that stuff out. Like I had to get all of that stuff out. So um, it's truly been uh, a roller coaster, highs and lows, goods and bads, more good than bad. And today it's just my life has completely changed. Um, It's a complete 180, completely to where I was in active addiction. And, you know, being able to, to, to face life today I always say with serenity and with confidence and not picking up a drink or a drug because I would use any excuse to drink or to use. Mm-hmm. If the Broncos are playing, I'm drinking. If I stubbed my toe this morning, I'm drinking. If I left my wallet at home, that was a reason to drink. Yep. If the coffee at the some, meeting sucked, we're drinking. <laughs> exactly. Any any excuse. And I realize that in my recovery now that. Um, a lot of that past trauma and stuff, I use that as excuses. Those are all excuses to use or a drink for me. Right. Today, I, I don't I don't make excuses to use and drink. I come up with solutions not to. Right. Um, whether it's reaching out or getting in the big book or going to a meeting or, you know, watching an uplifting movie or going to, you know, exercise or whatever it may be to get out of my head, um, prayer, meditation, all of these things that were suggestions from these people that, and I had seen in these rooms that had X amount of uh, your sobriety. Um, I just kind of followed their path and being in recovery for the first time, I didn't know how to do it any other way, but for what they were showing me. Right. So by the grace of God, all the glory goes to God. I am 365 days. So clean Woo! and sober without any mind altering substance. You know, I, I, I started my uh, recovery peer support certificate class. Um, I had got, I had gotten back into school. Um, I have a, an amazing job. I built this amazing network of recovery people. I found this amazing recovery family on TikTok. Um, <laughs> it's just crazy to, to think that there was a life. I've, I've, I've truly found out who I am as a person. I know how to have fun without a drink or a drug. I know my true self now. So it's just been so much. It's, I mean, it's, and it's a lot, but um, I wouldn't trade it for anything, man. I'm completely happy in my life. And I know that this is just the beginning for me. And I got it. I don't know if she's watching. Hopefully she is. I know she probably is, but I met an amazing woman in my journey of recovery and we are engaged and we're going to get married and She's a normie, but she accepts me for who I am. She's willing to work the steps with me, go to the meetings. She has two beautiful daughters that I absolutely adore that I fell in love with. Uh, they have my heart, and uh, it's one of the gifts of sobriety, man. I finally yeah. fell in love being my true self right. without a drink or a drug. So there's just so many great things that have happened to me 
since I surrendered. Right. Since I Congratulations to- on both counts. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm just so blessed and, and I have to, I have to remain in my humility to humility to me is, you know, the ability to remain teachable. Um, because when I act like I know everything, I don't know everything. And that could get me in trouble big time. Um, right. Right. So that's kind of my journey and kind of where I'm at now. And I truly believe that my story has just begun. So not only do I have a sponsor and a strong recovery network of people here with, you know, on ground zero, um, with, you know, with my boots on the ground here, um, I've met some amazing people on the app too, like, you know, like you and Recovery Mike and Soberflex and Brittany Jade and Denny the Dope Healer, who's my mentor, um, and Lady Sober, Don Lady Sober Coach, who is another one of my mentors. I have all of these amazing resources, and there's other people too. So if I didn't mention you, I forgot about you. you know, there's like Diz and Morgan, Morgan Matei and, and, and Georgia on my mind, and all these people that I've met. Um, that have inspired me. Um, I had actually made a video that I was going to post later and I talk about how um, a lot of people on this app that I've come across, they have affected my sobriety and my journey in some type of way, whether they know it or not. It might be a video they made. It might be a comment on one of my videos. It might've been something relatable that we talked to. And I have this long list of numbers that are people from TikTok that I have met. And I'm so grateful and so thankful um, to the people that I've met that have supported me on this journey, man. And uh, my story has just begun. Yes, it is. Yes, it has. Thank you yeah. so much, Chuck. This was powerful. This was fantastic. And, and it was a really good time, too. <laughs> I really yeah. enjoyed finally getting to talk to you, you know. Um, but yeah, your story is, yeah, it, it, you know, it's funny because you don't want to say, well, that's a good story because you know, a lot of our story is not a good story, but the way it ends up, it's pretty happy ending so far, you know? Yeah. So, but it's, it's definitely what I usually say is it's definitely a powerful story. You know? Yes. One exactly. that we all definitely, definitely want you to keep sharing. Yeah. My story might save someone's life one day. Exactly. Ooh, exactly. Nice. And so just thank you so much for being willing to come on and, I will, I will share this, a couple of things I've learned, you know, uh, I always tell people, you know, um, you know, life is, life is going to be life continue. Life is going to be life no matter what, whether you're sober or whether you're in active addiction, the key to it is if you do change, if you do choose a life of sobriety is, uh, you, you build, you develop these coping skills to deal with your emotions and your feelings in a different way than running to a drink or a drug. So today I have become addicted to a constant, never-ending self-improvement versus the latter. I stay right. in the middle of my recovery. I do the things I'm supposed to do. That keeps me grounded. I treat my recovery like a merry-go-round. I stay in the middle of it. So if I do slip and I start to slip, I'm not on the outside of it and I'm just going to fall off. Someone's going to be there to reach out and pull me back in. So recovery is possible. It's not going to be easy, but it's worth it. And you're going to have to put in the work. That's the bottom line. And, your and desire, go ahead. Your go desire ahead. to change must be stronger than your desire to stay the same. Yes, yes. Uh-oh. And tell people where they can find you on TikTok or other social media. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Chuck Northless, Chuck underscore Northless, or you can find me on TikTok at Soberlution Chuck, or you can find me on Facebook, um, uh, Christian Chuck Northless, 
those are the three major platforms that I share my story. And uh, once again, thank you very much for uh, inviting me uh, to share my experience, my strength, and my hope. You are you. so welcome. And that's it for another episode of The Recovery Scene. Thanks, everybody, for watching. Thank you for watching on the live. And we will see you next time.